Does anyone else here read biographies? Anyone enjoy biographies? Um, I thoroughly enjoy biographies. I am uh, a history buff, and so I love looking into the stories of people and thinking about sort of where they started, where they came from, how they became who they are. I just finished um, a biography on Alexander Hamilton. Um, before that, I did a biography on Ronald Reagan. Um, I uh, need to spread out a little bit away from politics, so I'm thinking the next one I'm looking for is a famous hockey player. I want to read the biography of Ken Dryden, my favorite goalie from the Montreal Canadiens. And it, what I've learned from reading biographies is this, um, they all pretty much start out the same way, right? If you're going to read a biography, they start out the same way. They say something like, Ronald Reagan was born in, I think he was born in Iowa. James, Iowa? Illinois, thank you, Mr. History Teacher. You're going to hold that against me now, and that's the worst part. Um, They all start with sort of the birth story, of whoever that person is. And in our scriptures, <clears throat> excuse me, in our scriptures, we have stories, we have, biogra- we have a biography, four of them actually, about um, Jesus. But each, if you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, they all look different. And in fact, how many of those biographies, those gospels, start with Jesus was born in? How many of them actually have the birth story? Anybody know? There's two of them. Which one? Which ones? Luke and Matthew. Mark and John do not. We're looking at John this morning. John doesn't start with the Bethlehem story. And you would think, okay, well, John doesn't want to start at the beginning. John doesn't want to start with sort of the um, Mary and Joseph going to Bethlehem and all the Magi and the shepherds. He doesn't want to start with that. But actually, of all the four Gospels, John goes back to the beginning better than all of them. And this morning, we want to see how John goes back to the beginning better than all of them. Because in doing that, we're going to learn more about how Jesus is engaged in the Trinity which is our study right now, study on the Trinity, in such a way that we understand his place in the eternal Godhead. We all know that God is eternal, which means we often think, okay, he has no end, right? I mean, we're going to be in eternity with God forever, but we don't think about the other side that God has no beginning. God always has been. He is. We sang it this morning. He is So as we dive into John chapter 1, a very familiar passage to some of you, um, let's pray for God's blessing, presence, as we learn more about the beginning. We ask that you are present with us this morning, O God. We pray, Father, that we experience the power that comes from engaging with your word that we hear in these words this morning all the echoes of your love and grace for us as your creation. 
And that, Lord, as we hear those echoes of love, we realize in this mystery that we're studying right now, the Trinity, the idea of one God in three persons. That as we learn more about the eternity, the eternal presence of you in all things, that, Lord, we see how you becoming flesh transforms that story even more beautifully. And it transforms it because of your love for us. We hear the echoes of that love that is personal, that has our name to it. You became flesh for me, for Scott. You became flesh for us. And Lord, out of that eternal Godhead, that becoming presence in this world, everything is changed. Everything is changed. May we then, Lord, learn to live into that change. We pray these things all in Christ. Amen. In your Bibles, I'd encourage you to go to the Gospel of John about one quarter from the back. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's the last of the Gospels. We'll begin at the beginning of John chapter 1. We'll start with verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Now, as we read those five verses and we say words like um, the word, uh, he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. I hope that reminds you of another story. What story does it remind you of? Genesis chapter 1. So, if it were thinking that it might remind us of Genesis chapter 1, let's look there for a second. Turn over, Genesis chapter 1, that's going to be the first page. Should be easy to find. And it says these words. We're just going to read a couple verses. In the beginning, echoes in John 1, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And I want you to read the next three words with me. What does it say? And God, say that again, God said. So, God spoke. What did he say? Well, he said there, let there be light, and there was light. Later on, he says, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place. Later on, he says, let the land produce vegetation. Let there be lights in the vault of all the sky to separate the day from the night. God says all these things. And what are the things that he says? He says what? He says all these ideas, but he uses something to say them. What does he use? This is very simple. This is as simple as it can get. He uses words. John chapter 1. Go back again. In the beginning was the the word. 
when God the Creator speaks in Genesis chapter 1, he uses words. In Greek, logos. What we're hearing here is that Christ the Son is present at the beginning of all things in creation as the means of creation. God speaks. Creation happens. We hear about life coming through Christ because Christ is who He is in the Godhead, in the one God. God through Christ, is a creator because of the power of the Word. Jesus starts, he's part of the beginning of the story. We want to say, oh, Jesus doesn't show up until the New Testament. He doesn't show up until Bethlehem. Or maybe he shows up at the Annunciation to to Mary, that she will be with child. No, Jesus is present right from the very beginning. You can see now why I say John the Gospel is actually the one that begins most at the beginning. Because it doesn't start with Bethlehem. It starts with where God is already internally present in Jesus through speaking Logos, the Word. Changes a little bit how we see the creation story. That it's not just this ethereal spirit hovering over the waters. What we would say in Hebrew, ruach. It's not just that. But that the spirit, the father, and the son are all present. As the creation becomes to be. It's a powerful image of God's eternal presence and reminds us that that's been the way from the very, very start. And even using the word start doesn't work because there's no start to eternity. Verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was, what does it say? Made through him, the logos, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. So right here in this section, we can see that God calling creation into being through the word Jesus, it's not just about putting stuff together. It's not just about sort of winding the watch of creation and saying, here it is, away it goes. You know, creation begins to function. Sun shines, rain falls, things grow, animals eat stuff, humans come to be, birds fly, the seas are filled with fish. It's not about the mechanics of creation. What we're hearing in this portion of the text through these words, it's about... You know, receiving Christ, 
about recognizing and receiving Christ, that God through creation is seeking to engender relationship. He wants to be with creation. In fact, we even see that, again, if we go back to the Genesis 2 and 3 story. Because what we hear there is God walks with Adam and Eve. God begins his creation wanting and longing to be in relationship with those whom he has created. But because of sin, that relationship has been hindered. That relationship has been hurt. And the only way for the relationship to be redeemed is through God's new way. Of engendering relationship. I'm not going to come just walk with you and then leave. As we see in the Genesis story. I'm going to come walk with you and stay. And live among you. And be with you. I'm going to God become flesh incarnate. Because I long for more deep relationship with you. Now, the other thing that we hear here is these, it says these words. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, we're looking at verse 12, he gave the right to become what? Children. Okay? Children is about relationship, right? It's, it's Mother's Day. Okay? And it's always hard as a church leader to think about how you navigate Mother's Day. There's a lot of moms in here who are really excited about Mother's Day because it means you're going to have special time with your kids today somehow, I hope, right? I mean, how many, how many moms got breakfast in bed? I know that at least one mom did. I saw some Instagram posts already. How many of you have other special things today planned for you because you're a mom? Wonderful. That's not the story for everyone here. Because there are some moms here for whom this day is painful. Because they won't get special things. Or they won't get a phone call. And there's some people here for whom this day is hard because they want to be moms. And they can't be moms for any number of reasons. Or it's hard for some because they've already been to a grave where the person who made them a mom now lays. It's hard to walk through Mother's Day well as a church, trying to be loving and pastoral to everyone. But here's what I do know about Mother's Day. I know that almost every single mom in here, how many of you, if I gave you the choice between spending three hours of wonderful quality time with your kids or a $1,000 necklace? How many of you are taking the necklace? I'm looking. <laughs> Probably not. Most of you, the wisest of you, will choose the time. Why? Because living into that beautiful relationship, the power of a, a mother and their children or mother and their child, there's beauty and love and power there that meets your heart and the longing of who you are as a parent. And that's what God is doing here. 
He is living into the longing of every father to be engaged deeply in intimate relationship with those who are his children. And thus, when we hear that those who recognized him have the right to become his children, we see that in Christ becoming incarnate, coming to the earth, that God is seeking, seeking a deepening of his intimacy and his relationship with his creation. He's longing to hang out with you. In fact, that's exactly what we hear. Next verse is verse 14. Powerful verse. Memorize it if you haven't. It says this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. We do a little bit of disservice to the language when we say dwelling. Because the exact same word that we hear for is translated dwelling actually is the Old Testament word of tabernacle. And if you know what tabernacle is in the Old Testament, it was God coming in this special thing that was built, a tent of meeting that was built specifically for the Ark of the Covenant, which signified God's presence among his people. It, to tabernacle was God camping out with his people and saying, I am with you. I am present with you. In fact, we, they know his presence. Why? Because of the pillar of cloud during the day and the pillar of fire at night. God was camping out with his people. And now, instead of camping out in a tent of presence that is, is limited in access because the Holy of Holies was only welcomed, only people who could go into the, that part of the tabernacle where God's presence was, was the holy high priest. And he could only do that once a year. But now, in Christ, God comes for an everyday tabernacling. God's presence is now with his people in being together, living together, and in flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, that's a hard one. That's a hard one theologically to sort of work through because God in his deity, he's God, yes, amen, he's God, Christ is God, becomes flesh. So when he becomes flesh, does he lose his godness? No, right? In fact, when he comes to earth, how much of him is God and how much of him is human? 50-50? 100-100, right? Is that what we're going to say? 100-100. Okay, think about that for a moment. If there is 100% of me, how much of that is, how, how much of that of me, how, how much of me is it? It's all of me, right? 100% of me is me, but if 100% of me is something else, how can that be? We're living again into the impossibility of who God is in, in his becoming flesh. We've already dealt with that a little bit with the Trinity, three persons in one God. Now we're living into that, into the incarnation of Christ, the impossibility of 100% God, 100% flesh. And what's interesting, okay, I'm just going to take you back 
back to my seminary days, this was a huge thing for us. We had to study like crazy to make sure that when a professor came up to us and said, what is the nature of God's humanity and his deity? Can you give me an understanding of what that means? I have to tell you, that's one of those hard answers that you have to start thinking about and getting it right, especially Will remembers the day, days. Hi, Will. Good to see you, Will and Ruth. Glad you're here. Remember the oral comps, Will. You had to make sure you got the answer right. And on this one, I remember trying to remember all the right words. And the only way that I could remember all the right words is when a friend of mine came up to me and said, hey, I have a helpful tool for you. I have a song. When you sing the song, you'll get right. And here's the song. Inseparable, indivisible, unconfused and unchanged, fully God, fully man, Theodicus, begotten of flesh. And I know that there's a lot of things in there that you're like, wonder what are you talking about, Scott? Because if you think about the impossibility and the incredibleness of God coming down in his deity, becoming 100% flesh with humanity, you have to think, okay, where does things get separated? How does, how does God live into it through Jesus Christ, his deity? How does he live through his humanity? It's complicated. Well, it's inseparable. You can't divide it up. And God never gets confused. Christ never gets confused about which of him is active in the world. It's always unconfused. And neither changes the other. But then you have Mary. Mary is human, right? So is she the mother of God? Remember how hard that question was, Will? Is Mary God's mother? You know how big of a deal that is in some churches? In fact, the Catholic Church? It's one of the reasons why you have Mary worshipped. Who is Jesus in relation to Mary? And how is Mary the mother of God? That's why we use the word theotokos. It's a Greek word that that says only this. That Mary is the mother of God in his flesh and his flesh only. We're into the impossibility of the Trinity again. But in the impossibility, we can understand how God did this incredibly amazing, intense, powerful thing so that we as his creation might know a deeper level of intimacy. It's about us knowing relationship. He longs to be with us, camp out. How does he do that? In the flesh. How does that happen? Through Mary begotten, begatting, got to get it right, begatting his flesh. But he never loses loses his godness. And in that then God can continue his work through Jesus Christ of redeeming the world. Because a human A human then can ultimately become the sacrifice for sin. And ultimately, we can have a cross. And we can have a tomb because there's death. And that can only happen through God's humanity in Jesus and 100% of it. The passage closes with verse 15 through 18. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. One of the very clear verses of the text, if you think about it. 
One of his, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. You remember last week we were talking about how Christ's work is making known who the Father is. Now, there's tons of theology here, and I'm not going to get into it. We could talk about grace versus law. We could talk about the eternity of Christ, which we've already done a little bit. Christ's union with God and his uniqueness in relationship with the Father. But what I really want us to grab onto is that Christ's purpose in becoming flesh was about grace, the sacrifice. Without Christ becoming flesh, Grace can't work. And we're not going to get into all the Old Testament stuff about how there had to be a sacrifice for sin and without, without sacrifice for sin, sin could be held against and, and that there had to be a perfect sacrifice. We're not going to get into all of that. But what I am saying to you is that as you understand anything about who God is, I'm just going to say this and... and, and it's a, it's a little bit heretical, just a, just a touch heretical. But when I talk about the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, I'm going to be honest, Jesus is my favorite. Jesus is my favorite. Because without Jesus, I don't have grace. Without Jesus, if we look at the text, I don't have life. Without Jesus... There is no light. Without Jesus, there is no salvation. Without Jesus, there is no rest of the story. See, this world knew, knew what it was like before Christ came to earth. We have a picture. It's the whole Old Testament. It's things getting messed up over and over again with really ultimately no hope of redemption except the promise of the coming Messiah. And so when I look at the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I just am partial to Jesus. I just like him. I like him because it gives me everything. So what do we learn then about the Trinity? Now, here's what I learned that's practical for me. When I hear the words at the beginning of John chapter 1, you know what I hear? I hear that Christ became, came so that I might have life, and Christ came so that I might have light. Hear those two things? He, became, he came so that I might have life, and that for eternity, and that there might be light in the world that we live. And here's why that's really important to me. Because on Friday, we had the memorial for Harvey, and I'm sick of death. I'm really sick of death. And there's too much of it. There's too much in our world. And there's some of you who deal with it much more prevalently than others. And there's some of you who think about even a day like Mother's Day with death being a part of that story somehow or in some way. 
And when I hear about death, I, I need something to help me get through that. So I look for life. If I'm going to see a lot of death, then I need to look for life. And if I understand this text right, where do I get life? Someone say it. No, 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 no. Don't whisper it. Where do I get life? Where do you get life? Where does the world that is a place filled with death get life? You people are namby-pamby sissy la las We're going to crank that up in a minute. We heard in the song that we sang just a little bit ago, and we're going to sing it again right after the sermon, Is He Worthy? If you remember Jim's first line, do you see the world's darkness? How many of you see world's darkness? We do. We really do. And that's not unusual. The world has had darkness from, from the beginning of sin. It's always been here. But we certainly see it in a lot of places. And it's painful to see darkness. It's painful to see the brokenness that the darkness of sin brings. In little children who are a part of, uh, who are in places of war. People who are victims of violence. As I said before, that the, the darkness of racism in this world is, is a powerful, painful darkness. The darkness of, of, of addiction and of just all the things that we could name. The list goes on and on and on. And we could probably take a couple pieces of paper and fill them up in about 10 minutes with all the darkness that we see in the world. I was sitting with a, a man not long ago sitting at his kitchen table with he and his wife. And as we were sitting, he said, I just see so much darkness. I wonder how long Jesus is going to wait to come. And I feel that sometimes. But if we're surrounded by darkness, then what do we look for? Light. And how do we get light? That's a little louder. I like it. How do we get light? We're in a dark world, friends. That's, again, it's not unusual. It's always been here. But if we're going to live in a dark world and we don't have a choice about it, how in the world are we going to find light? We're going to look for Jesus. Which means that this, okay? When you're walking into whatever you're walking into today, I don't care what it is, okay? My family, we're going to be doing a little bit of driving. We're going to be on the highway. And every time on the, I'm on the interstate, I see the darkness of the souls of every single person around me. They cut me off. It's demonic. They get in the lane in front of me. You see all this darkness. And you're going to see it in other places too. You're going to turn on the news today. You're going to open up your social media today. You're going to see different reports today. And you're going to see darkness. Then your and my work becomes, dear Jesus, giver of light in the darkness. May I have eyes to see you in these spaces. 
In these places of darkness, in these places of pain, in these places of death, in these places of brokenness, may I have eyes to see, but if I don't have eyes to see, then life really stinks. When I have a conversation with a person like Jean right now, asking her the question, can you imagine what it would be go, to go through something like this without Jesus? It's because in those spaces of pain and death, Jesus brings life. And in those places of hurt and brokenness, Jesus brings light. Why? Because it's who, because it's who he is. Let's pray. You are. You are light and life. You are the means of creation. You are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You are the one who brings hope when there is hopelessness. You are the one who brings grace where there is brokenness and sin. You are the one who brings healing to illness. You are the one who brings a future to those who feel they have none. You are Jesus. And we thank you. In your name we pray, amen.